This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. There are Tiger Moms, and then there's Rachel Morin, Jason Pinter's protagonist in the thriller series that bears her name. Pinter has given Rachel a very unique skill set. She has an uncanny ability to see clues that crime scene investigators may miss. She is also a lethal killer. In A Stranger at the Door, the second book of the series, when danger lands on Rachel's doorstep with the threat of harming her young family, she has a vested interest in solving the heinous murder of a local high school teacher. Jason and I discuss the twists and turns of this suspense-filled thriller. We also talk about small towns and the evil that may lurk behind those perfect white picket fences. In your second book of the Rachel Marin series, which I thoroughly loved, A Stranger at the Door, Mm-hmm. You've um, upset a little bit of the peace that Rachel has found <laughs> in, you know, in this very small Midwestern town of Ashby when a local teacher, Matthew Linklater, is murdered in such a truly heinous fashion. I, yeah. I, oh, I, oh, I read that and I was <laughs> like, oh, I don't know where he got that, which we'll talk about later because I do want to know where you got that. So she's been asked by, you know, two police detectives on Ashby's Homicide Squad, John Serrano, who she also happens to be dating, and Mm. his partner, Leslie Talley, to consult on the case. You've given her a very unique skill set that allows her to consult with the police, and yet she skirts just outside the law. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How did you come up with this concept? And, you know, my biggest question is, are there other folks who do what she does? <laughs> I don't know if there are other folks who do what she does. Uh, like you said, she's sort of resting on the very knife's edge of legal versus illegal. Uh, and I think there's sort of like a very tenuous piece between her and the police. And if, you, if you've read Hideaway or if you haven't and you read this book, Rachel has a distrust of law enforcement for very legitimate reasons. But after the events in Hideaway, she's sort of learning to trust a little bit more uh, she wants to sort of feel like she can uh, trust people in a way that she hasn't in a long time. Uh, and she has a skill set that enables her to help right wrongs. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that she possesses and she sort of, it's its something for her to, for her to sort of re-enter society a little bit. But at the same time, she's not law enforcement. She's not a cop. She has not been a part of the force. Um, so she does things that the police wouldn't approve of, but at the same time, if she has this skill set, she has to put it to use, otherwise it's kind of a waste. Um, so that was sort of, at the beginning, I wanted this character who was almost sort of like, kind of like a female Sherlock Holmes in some ways, but have, you know, Sherlock is this very, um, you know, he's a very, other than Watson, he's kind of a very solitary character. He's, uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of people who depend on him. So I thought if you take that character, somebody who is capable and strong, and wants to solve these crimes, but also has these two children who depend on her, that would immediately create a really interesting uh, form of conflict and drama that I wanted to explore. How could somebody with these skills, with these talents, try to solve crimes, but at the same time knowing that just by doing so, she could risk everything she cares about? Right, right. I think the addition of children, you know, when you look at Sherlock as sort of the model, she has to get out of herself and into the real world, for her, if not for her sake, but for her children's. They've all suffered the devastation of loss because yes. of her 
husband and how his life was taken right there in front of Eric, her son. Yeah. I mean, you've really, you gave them a lot of healing that needs to be done. Yeah, and that's one of the things I wanted to explore in this book is that, you know, after, you know, in Hideaway, we learned that Rachel's uh, husband was brutally murdered. Her son essentially witnesses it. Uh, and they're both traumatized because of it. Their, her daughter was an infant at the time and sort of like has some memories, but isn't quite as affected because she was a little too young to have some of those. And Rachel's, her number one priority was protecting her family. It was getting them away, hiding them out, essentially, you know, putting a rock over them. But in doing so, she really didn't get to the emotional core of what would need to be healed between her and her son. I think she was so focused on the actual protection itself. She looked, she was looking more at the external than the internal. And so she has never really fully healed. Her son has never really fully healed. And these kind of things start to come to a head, especially because she can't let her son live in a bubble. She can't let her daughter live in a bubble. She can't protect them their entire life. But at the same time, if their respective traumas aren't addressed on an emotional level, it's going to stump them traumatically. So that's one of the things I really wanted to go into in this book is is especially in regards to her son because he witnessed it firsthand and now he's a teenager. And as if being a teenager isn't hard enough, what's it like to be a teenager who is dealing with, you know, adolescence and puberty and hormones and feelings, but also carrying on this enormous weight that he's never really learned how to carry. And Rachel realizes that she's never really fully allowed him to or helped him heal. And that's something that she has to do. Right. For obvious reasons, she comes off as the ultimate helicopter mom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, she, she is like, you know, I think in the first book, she even says like, she wishes he would get in trouble. She wishes, wishes she, he would go out and act like a normal kid, throw a baseball through a window or something, but he's so withdrawn. And part of her, like, you know, all these parents, that they want their kids to behave and be perfect. Rachel's like, no, I want him to be a normal kid. But at the same time, it's this real paradox between wanting her, her son to be a normal son, but then wanting to essentially keep him in bubble wrap for the rest of his life. Right. Um, he, he is certainly her bubble boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I love the way he came out of his shell in the book, but nobody's really truly out of their shell. Um, right. And I want to explore sort of his downward trajectory, which was, to me, the driving force of the novel. I mean, mm -hmm. for a lack of a better word, he is a lost boy, but there seems to be yeah. a bunch of these lost boys in the town yeah. of Ashby. And yeah. You know, you've kind of given them a Pied Piper. Yes. Explain to me how that came about to you as a plot device. And obviously <laughs> it's the whole crux of the mystery and why the poor Mr. Linklater got murdered. Yes. Which is kind of sad. I'm sorry. He was kind of, I, I really <laughs> love the way you created him out of thin air and then just kind of wove him into this wonderful person who ends up you know, lasting all the five minutes of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully he made an impression in those five minutes. Oh, he did. That's, you know, I think that, you know, he made an impression on his students. His, he made an impression on, obviously, a lot of people in town. I won't give away too much yeah. of the plot. But, um, you know, when you have wonderful teachers that are looking after students, it's always kind of like, oh, no, one of the good guys left, you know, is gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I do want to talk about the whole Lost Boys thing, because with everything that's happening in our world right now, I see a lot of grown Lost Boys. Really, Lost Boys was sort of like 
that was one of the jumping off points for me. And especially in regards to sort of our society and culture in that there is this segment of society. And I think it's mainly in adolescent men or sort of, I'd say men between the ages of like 15 and 25 or maybe 30, um, mainly young men, mainly white, I would say, who sort of feel like the world has let them down unfairly. And I think it's because there's a sense of both entitlement, there's a sense of things aren't going the way they, they thought they were going to go. And there's this sort of bottled up anger and rage that ends up getting misdirected at people that they think are their enemies or people that they think are taking them things from them, whether it's jobs or money or position or status. Um, and I really wanted to explore that a little bit. And, and that Rachel's son doesn't necessarily feel that way. I think his hurt comes from a different place. But like you said, there's this Pied Piper and this character of Bennett Bryce, who sort of is the head of this sort of like a kind of um, Amway-esque Ponzi scheme. And they recruit these young boys and try to essentially give them direction and say, listen, you're being left behind. Society doesn't care about you. Society is going to lift up people that don't deserve it, and you're going to be left in the dust, but here I am to save you. And that resonates with a lot of these young boys who are willing to do some pretty terrible things for this guy because of it. And I think anytime you're going to do something bad on behalf of someone else, it's got to be for more than just money. It's, there's got to be an emotional component to it, a nasty emotional component that he convinces these boys that they've been left in the dust, but he's going to help pull them out. In a season, Rachel's son, here's a boy who feels lost. Here's a boy who is looking for direction, who's angry, who has rage, who has this unexplored side to him, I can use that and I can exploit that. And Eric at that point is very vulnerable. And like you said, Rachel sees her son falling into the clutches of this guy and she has to do something about it because he is not, you know, he's, he's not up on the up and up like he claims to be. Right, right. And not to give anything away, because I'm not going to, because it's just too good. <laughs> you want, I want the readers <laughs> to discover it the way I discovered all the little pieces of the puzzle that you kind of laid in, you know, or didn't lay in and, and allow the reader to lay in. You have a sympathetic character in Evie Boggs in the sense that she is deadly, but yeah, she's mm -hmm. sympathetic at the same time. And yeah. she is someone from Rachel's past. In fact, she suggested Ashby as a place where Rachel might mm -hmm. want to reinvent herself. But she, when she appears on Rachel's doorstep in book two, she appears with a warning and she wants to warn her off the case. You've kind of given Evie a valid reason to play both sides against the middle. And I just want to mm -hmm. ask you, when you came up with this character, did you see her in a reoccurring role in Rachel's life? So for people who read, um, the character of Evie Boggs, a.k.a. Myra is introduced in Hideaway as sort of uh, Rachel's confidant, sparring partner, coach, the person who sort of helps whip Rachel into shape after her loss. When I wrote Hideaway, I don't think I originally saw her as a recurring character, but I love the character. And it's sort of like, occasionally you'll write a book and you'll see a character, okay, this character is great for this story. But then they grow on you and you start to think about it. There's something like, how can I bring them back? Like, I just, I don't want to leave this character. And I think that was with Evie for me, where I love the character so much. The dichotomy between her and Rachel was so interesting. And she's really the first person who gets Rachel to open up after her trauma. And there's a reason for that. There's really like something about Evie just lets Rachel let down her guard a little bit. And then, so what happens if you take that element, the only person who maybe 
got through to Rachel, but then have her come back to Rachel after she's already moved on, after she is in this new place, after sort of like her life has been upended. What if you introduce this combustible element in Evie, sort of like the old friend, but they show up at your door and you know they're not quite a friend. Um, they're not there for, you know, to, to say hi. They're there for a reason. And that's why when Evie shows up at Rachel's door, Rachel's not, oh, hey, long time no see. What's going on? Come in for a drink. She's like, something's wrong. This woman is here for a reason. And like you said, Evie is Evie is kind of playing both sides. She is both an antagonist to Rachel and that she has a very stern warning for Rachel. But at the same time, we know that she's doing things to protect her people in her own life. And she and Rachel sort of like flip sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. And I thought that was just, I love that character. I wanted to bring her back to Rachel, but at different points in their life and just see what happened. You know, dro dropping, you know, the, the nitroglycerin. Right. <laughs> Good point. Um, you know, it's funny because to me, she's two sides of the same coin in my mind because she actually has a vested interest in being there. And she, as we find out later in the book, she has mm -hmm. two reasons for being there. And both yes. are very yeah. valid. And at the same time, you can tell that she has tremendous respect for Rachel. But at the same time, she has this vested interest elsewhere. Yes. I like the fact that you gave her more than one reason to be there. Because people, especially adults, do make their own mistakes. But there was some kind of redemption that I feel as much as Rachel needs it, Evie needed it, and you gave her that. You have a couple of brothers who are very, very bad guys in the book. <laughs> you know, Randall and Rainy yeah. Spivak. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, I was like, man, you know, if you're going to have a couple of henchmen, these guys are as ugly and dirty as they can get. Every story needs a couple of really bad guys. The way you layered them into the story kept building the tension. In your mind... Who were these guys? I mean, where'd you pick them up? Fargo? <laughs> <laughs> I looked at, you know, um, the brothers you're speaking of are sort of their, you call them, you know, villains, I guess, uh, of the story. And you have to read the book to sort of find out what they do exactly. But when, you know, I, we talked a little bit about Bennett Bryce, and he's sort of the head of this uh, sort of Ponzi scheme and white company. But he also, he has this very sort of shiny veneer. Um, you know, he's very professional. He doesn't lose his cool. Um, you know, he's sort of, he's Gordon Gecko in a lot of ways, you know, he's, he's very, you see him and he's, he's always put together. So if he is the sort of clean slate, they're the dirty side. If Bennett is sort of like the front piece, they're the ones who, when you lift up the rock, they're who's under it. Perfectly put. One thing that I felt about the brothers, the pain that they enforce on others, it made me very sympathetic and scared for the kids who were involved, all those lost boys. I felt that you drew that very, very tightly. My heart was beating every time Eric entered a scene. And I appreciated the fact that you involved him in such a way all the way to the end. I also felt good about, you give Rachel's daughter, Megan, an obsession to write action and adventure books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does she remind you of anyone? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she reminds me of anyone, but I just, I, I like sort of when you have these characters in the book, I don't, I never like when they're just there, you know, oh, there's Rachel's daughter. I want to like, what's her personality? What does she like? What are her interests? But at the same time, there's sort of like, 
she's writing these sort of little books of her own, the Sadie Scott books, like sort of action and adventure. But at the same time, it's sort of like, that's sort of who her mother is in some ways. She's this sort of action hero. But whereas like with Sadie, everything ends up perfect at the end of the day, things aren't always quite as neat and tidy for Rachel herself. So to me, it was just a way to give Megan a little more personality and to sort of draw a parallel between what she wants to do and what her mother is actually doing too. And that her mother is sort of like this, you know, undercover superhero in some ways, but Sadie is actually writing these sort of superhero books in her, in her own time. Right. She's writing about um, a kick-ass woman and her mother is a kick-ass woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's also like, you know, when, when you're that age, when you're six years old, you think your parents are superheroes. Um, and it's only when you get a little bit older that you can sort of see the cracks in the foundation and realize that your parents always generally mean well, but they're not superheroes. They're just people. Right, right. I also liked that you introduced the character of Chester Barnes in the book. I get the feeling that as the series goes on, he's going to play a bigger role. <laughs> Am I right? He might. So I think people who haven't read it, Chester Barnes is sort of like a, a bit of a shady lawyer, I would say. Uh, and, and he, he's briefly mentioned in Hideaway and he comes back, he comes back here and has some things to do in this book. So yeah, it's sort of, I, I like having sort of a bit of a recurring cast of characters, but then also bringing in new characters to stir the pot a little bit too. Right. He's sort of a dark, better call Saul in my mind. <laughs> That's very true. You know, that great line from Breaking Bad is, you know, you don't want a criminal lawyer, you want a criminal lawyer. <laughs> right, right. And it seems that Chester Barnes is following in those footsteps. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe he's seen Better Call Saul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I assume or I hope there's a next uh, Rachel Martin book on the way. Am I right? You know, I, I certainly hope so. Um, I have the idea for the third book that I think could be really interesting. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's like anything. It comes down to hopefully enough people read it and buy it and spread the word that everyone will want to be on board to continue the series. That That's sort of my... My ideal situation, I would love to. Every now and then, I, I want to step outside of the sort of the crime thriller genre and try something different. And, um, you know, I wrote one book for middle grade readers, uh, Zeke Bartholomew, Super Spy. And then I wrote a picture book uh, that was really inspired by my older daughter. Who, um, you know, we, my wife and I went through a pretty, pretty hard period of, of infertility. And uh, we went through a whole bunch of rounds of IVF uh, before, thankfully, having our, our older daughter. Uh, and that book was written for her and for any parents who have sort of struggled to find their own miracle. And that was, so it's to me, it's sort of to write those kind of books, they, they really come from inspiration. So I, I, I love doing it. And, you know, when inspiration strikes, then I, I'm there. I, I love writing those kind of books. I think it's great. I think we all, the only way we can write is to be inspired by the stories that are in our heads. Yes, absolutely. And um, that's why I've sort of really taken to this series. This series to me has all the right stuff. You've got a protagonist who is so fearless and at the same time, fear is what drives her. Yes. Then she's got this wonderful relationship with John Serrano, uh, who is, you know, a homicide detective. And yet he has to, there's a lot about what can happen between the two of them that can be either good or bad. I mean, he has reason to step away from her because she gives him a lot of reason for that, or he has reasons to love her. And, you know, we're all in, in our own relationships, and there's always things we love and hate about the people mm. that we live with. And in their case, they're still finding their way. But I thought that was a, added a whole other 
extra ingredient, that he wasn't necessarily a fully bad guy. He understands pain. He understands because of his own pain and his own journey, but he also understands her pain and he knows when to step back. You don't usually see that in these kinds of books where you have somebody who gets the issue is not just a third wheel in the story. He's truly integrated into the story. When you developed his character, you know where the boundaries are with him, which a lot of people, they will skirt the boundaries sometimes. But you're pretty much keeping him the straight, narrow cop. But at the same time, because of his own hurt and pain, he's giving her some leeway. With him, I'm sure it was kind of a, a difficult thing because he is a policeman. He's got to do everything by the book. Yeah, I mean, you know, when the, when the first book... Um... I knew I wanted Rachel to sort of butt heads a little bit with the actual homicide detective investigating the, the murder, but I didn't want them to be just sort of run-of-the-mill cardboard cutout cops. I wanted both characters, John Starr and Leslie Talley, to be, again, real people. They have backstories. They have families or not families. And how do they get to where they are right now? And we, you know, we learn more about Leslie Talley, and I love her character, and John Serrano, who has suffered this tremendous loss also. And to me, that's sort of why Rachel connects with John, because they've both suffered this loss. And Rachel has this, like I said, sort of um, very legitimate distrust of law enforcement. But when she learns more about John Serrano and she starts seeing him as not a cop, but a human being, a little bit of that trust starts to come back a little bit because she knows his heart's in the right place. And, you know, she starts to have feelings for him beyond that. And that's something that's a very important piece of this book, because they have entered into sort of a tentative relationship. But at the same time, like Rachel is not just some woman you date. She's not a normal person by any stretch of the imagination. So how does someone like John Serrano date Rachel, who is always on guard and very protective and unwilling to sort of bring somebody into her life? And for John, how do you date someone like John, who even though, like you said, you know, he's, a, he's a good guy, he's mostly on the up and up, but he suffered this tremendous loss too that, weight hangs around his neck every second of the day. This is somebody who is not necessarily a lighthearted guy. So on one hand, there's this incredible connection and electricity between them because they just, they do connect. But they're also, these are two people with a lot of baggage. And is that baggage going to weigh them down to the point where they can't move forward together? Or are they going to learn how to carry it? Right. So do you see Ashby as the ideal place for Rachel to raise her kids? Or is there going to be more darkness in Ashby for her? Well, I think, you know, nobody, I don't think there's such thing as sort of like a perfect town. It's like, you know, this sort of um, boy picket fences and 2.2 children. And I think that was where sort of one of Rachel's follies and that she was looking for, you know, the ideal place to go away with her children, somewhere where she wouldn't be bothered, where there's nothing going on. But Every town has a backstory. Every town has darkness. There's no town without crime. I think the more Rachel is willing to sort of put herself out there and be part of the community, the more she's going to find that this is not, you know, this is not Pleasantville. This is not the perfect place because there is no certain perfect place. You, you just, you do the best with what you have where you are. Right. The quaintest town in the country. Like, where is that? Because I think there's this sort of, make-believe time or make-believe place where everything was perfect, but it was only perfect to one person. Maybe it was terrible to somebody else. And I think that's one of the things that sort of Ashby is, where Rachel thinks it's this perfect town where she can sort of lay low, but it's not really that, because nowhere is really that. Um, 
what affects her might not affect somebody else, but vice versa. So I, I love the notion of Rachel sort of uncovering all these little secrets about the town that she didn't know before she moved there. Right, right. And I can see such a dirty underbelly and she'll get right in the middle of it and she's making Ashby better again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. I, 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 unless she burns it all down, we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully she won't. <laughs> You'll find Jason Pinter's novel, A Stranger at the Door, through Amazon. You can also order it from your favorite local bookstore. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.